Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Friday, May the 28th. My guess is you are packing for Memorial Day weekend or you're at least thinking about Memorial Day weekend. Um, And so I hope that you will consider giving honor where honor is due. Like, let's not let it just be a weekend of, uh, of time away from our routines or the start of the summer or backyard cookouts, whatever your Memorial Day plans include, let us be certain that we actually remember and honor um, those who died in service of this country. It is Memorial Day for a reason. And so let us be people who pay attention to the memorial nature of it and give gratitude where gratitude is due, honor where honor is due. Uh, All right. So this headline caught my attention a couple of days ago, and I feel like it is posted as if on cue in terms of uh, my next my next uh, conversation, which is with Professor Chris Kayser, um on bioethics, and so here's the uh, here's the lead from National Public Radio. The article is controversial: new guidelines would allow experiments on more mature human embryos. So here's what's going on: for decades, uh, scientists have been uh, prohibited from keeping human embryos alive in the lab for more than 14 days. Now, you're saying to yourself, well, that means that they have been experimenting uh, on human embryos for the first 14 days. And that is troubling to those of us who are pro-life from conception to natural death. But the 14-day limit in terms of the uh, time of experimentation was put in place for a variety of reasons. Uh, Around 14 days is the time when an embryo starts to develop the first signs of a central nervous system. Uh, It is also when an embryo can no longer split into twins. And so uh, it, it is the time from which scientists are prohibited from sustaining the ongoing life and development of the embryo. Well, that uh, is changing. So that prohibition uh, against keeping an embryo alive beyond the 14-day point in scientific labs is uh, is now under reconsideration. So on Wednesday, an influential scientific society recommended um, scrapping the 14-day rule. The International Society of Stem Cell Research has released new guidelines, and they say it would be permissible to study living human embryos in the lab for longer than those initial two weeks. Here are some of the challenges related to that. Um, They never set an end point. It's not as if they say, oh, it's not 14 days, it should be 28 days. No, they don't set an end point at all. Uh, And that is really troubling. Um, If it's not going to be 14 days and you're not going to recommend a particular end point, then instead of 
14 days? Could it be 14 weeks instead of uh, 20 or 28 days? Could it be 20 weeks? You see where this is headed, right? So the question of bioethics and the question of how we study human diseases and how we come up with answers to really difficult questions about human disease um, is imperative. And so how do we make biomedical ethical decisions? That's what my conversation with Professor Chris Kayser is all about. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Dr. Christopher Kayser. He's a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. Dr. Kayser, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Glad to be talking with you. All right. So um, you intrigue me. The book is Disputes in Bioethics, Abortion, Euthanasia, and Other Controversies. Um, And these are conversations we really need help with today. And so thank you so much for being able to for being willing to wade into this subject matter area with sort of the crowd out here in the culture. Oh, sure. No, I'm happy to do it. I I think these issues are very important for uh, people of all faiths and, and frankly, people of no faith also. So I'm always happy to talk to people about that. So of late, I hear a lot of evangelical Christians talking about the need to, um, you know, look into, listen carefully to, learn from our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in terms of natural law. So can you um, help me sort of root this conversation in the Catholic principle of that faith and reason are harmonious? Sure. Yeah. The basic idea is that all truth comes from God. So the truths that we find in the Bible, those come from God. We call that the book of Revelation. And also the truths that we can learn through our own reasoning, those also come from God. You could call that the book of nature. So the basic idea of natural law is that God has put in the human heart uh, an internal guide to enable us to move closer to God. And we do that by loving God and loving our neighbor. And so, you know, people can come to understand basic moral truths, like not to steal, without the help of revelation. So the idea is basically that all people of goodwill, whether they're Christians or not, could come to understand basic moral truths, like not to kill other people, not to steal, etc. And so you don't need kind of a special revelation from God in order to understand those truths. Now, it is true that God does reveal those things also to us. I mean, we do have the Ten Commandments. But even before God gave the Ten Commandments, it was still wrong to murder others. So before the Ten Commandments were given, in Scripture, we have the story of Cain and Abel, right? Brother kills brother. But that action was wrong, even though the Ten Commandments had not yet been given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay, so Christians listening right now might instinctively approach bioethical and ethical conversations um, in, in a way that they've never taken the time to identify. Like there might be a way that because my life is rooted um, in Scripture, because I am a confessing Christian, I approach conversations related to ethics and included in that would be bioethics in a particular way. But I've never really thought about 
how that lines up with other ways that other people might approach the ethical conversations of the day. So can you identify those as like, I don't know, categories or camps? Yeah, I think there obviously people do uh, approach things in different ways. And Christians, you know, we approach things through uh, scripture and through the example of Jesus. And uh, non-Christians, of course, are not going to appeal to the Bible to determine what their beliefs are. But I actually think there is a kind of common ground, a kind of overlap. So as Christians, we believe that each and every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. We see this obviously in the book of Genesis, right, where it said that God creates male and female in his own image and likeness. But as Christians, we also see this in the life and ministry and work of Jesus. So throughout the Gospels, Jesus is reaching out to all kinds of different people, including people that are very different than he was. So think of the Samaritan woman at the well, right? He's reaching out to her. Now, for secular people, for people that uh, don't have faith, it is, uh, you know, they're not going to look to the story of, of Jesus or the stories in Genesis, but many of these people do believe in human rights. And the idea of human rights is that all human beings deserve to be treated with respect, not just some, but all, regardless of age or health condition or politics, or regardless of anything. And so I think there is a kind of common ground here between people of faith and some people that don't have faith yet, and that would be this idea that every single human being deserves a certain respect. And that's true, obviously, from a Christian perspective, because that's you know, the way Jesus treated people. But also it could be seen through from, you might say, a secular perspective, in that many people uh, who are secular nevertheless still believe in the idea of basic human rights for all human beings. Okay, and we might call that approach to the conversation a natural law approach, or would we have another name for that? Uh, you could call it natural law. I'm not sure you have to call it natural law, but the, ba the basic idea of natural law is that there are truths about how we should behave that both people of faith and also people who are lacking faith both can come to understand and both can try to live by. So again, these basic truths would be things like not stealing. So I don't think that it's a, a truth that is difficult for most people to understand. I think almost everybody can understand, especially when someone steals from them, that they don't like to be stolen from. Likewise, mm, right. the truth that we shouldn't kill innocent people. Again, almost everybody can understand, you know, when 9-11 happened and we had all those people, uh, you know, dying in the buildings and, you know, Twin Towers falling. Uh, again, I don't think it was complicated that people couldn't understand why, why this was wrong. I think everybody virtually uh, would say, yes, of course, it's wrong to kill innocent people. It's wrong to be a terrorist and blow up buildings and blow up airplanes. So these truths are truths that, from a Christian perspective, um, God has planted, you might say, in the human heart. That is to say that God has, as part of the gift of creation, given us a basic knowledge of basic truths of ethics, basic truths of right or wrong. And some of these truths are relevant for bioethics. So, you know, if it's really true that it's wrong to kill innocent people, well, that's true at the beginning of life, and it's also true at the end of life. Okay, which which really does get us to the approach that you take in the book. It, and this series of essays is really, really um, helpful. And it's also written away, in a way that um, I think, you know, most of us out here um, can actually apprehend and comprehend. So I appreciate that. The book is Disputes in Bioethics, Abortion, Euthanasia, and Other Controversies. Uh, Professor Christopher Kayser is the author. He teaches at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., 
and he and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I'm going to ask um, Dr. Kayser to respond to a couple of uh, ethical headlines or headlines that um, that actually tease out the content of his book. So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, continuing uh, my conversation now with Professor Christopher Kayser, um, l- let me use a couple of very recent headlines to tee up the conversations that you address in the book. Um, April 16, 2021, article in the L.A. Times by the editorial board, uh, the headline, The Right to an Abortion Means a Right to Have It for Any Reason. Here's the article lead. A constitutional right to an abortion means a right to have one for any reason. That should also mean a woman can elect to tell her doctor or not why she wants an abortion. So this would be the bioethical question, you know, presented by an article in the L.A. Times. And and how do we respond to that? Well, I think it's important to recognize that the fact that something is declared constitutional by the Supreme Court does not mean that that action is a just and morally good action. So there was a very famous Supreme Court case called Dred Scott, which declared that basically slavery uh, was legal and that escaped slaves needed to be forced back and returned to their owners. Now, I think now with some historical perspective, uh, everybody, I hope, would recognize that that Supreme Court case was an absolute travesty, that people of color are just as much persons as uh, white people, and that the court should have decided that all human beings deserve respect. So in 1973, the Supreme Court, in a case called Roe versus Wade, made a similar declaration to the Dred Scott case. And what Roe versus Wade said is that prenatal human beings don't count as persons. They are, as it were, just chattel, just property. And the woman in question can do anything she wants. And this is the view that's also reflected in the Los Angeles Times editorial that you refer to. Now, I think that both faith and reason point us in an opposite direction to say that all human beings deserve to be protected by law and welcomed in life. And that conclusion is something that all people of goodwill can, in principle, come to understand. And one of the ways we can come to understand that is every single time that we've ever divided human beings into two groups, those that have basic rights and those that don't. Every single time we've ever done that, we've made a horrible mistake. So we made a horrible mistake in the Dred Scott decision where we said, if you're a white person, you have rights, but if you're a person of color and a slave, you don't. We made a similar mistake when it came to the treatment of women where we said, well, if you're a man, you have basic rights and you can vote, but if you're a woman, you know, you don't. And so I think, too, today we're making a similar terrible mistake when we say if you're waiting to be born, if you're prenatal, you don't have any rights. But if you're born, all of a sudden you do count. My view would be that we should respect all human beings, that we should be inclusive, that we should work towards a society in which we include everyone and exclude no one. And I think that this conclusion is something that people of faith and also people without faith can both understand and both in principle accept. Okay, which I think leads us into a conversation about that definition of human beings. So here is a headline from Spain. Um, Spain to give pets the same rights as humans, an animal welfare breakthrough in the home of bullfighting. 
Um, the lead is domestic animals will be considered, quote, living beings under Spanish law instead of mere objects. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, you know, animals are living beings. Uh, that, that seems absolutely true. And they're not just objects. And that's the reason why I think people of goodwill can also see that it would be wrong to torture, say, a dog or a cat, just to inflict pain for no reason on a dog or a cat. So I think we can recognize that that's, that's certainly true, but also recognize that human beings have a distinct and special place in terms of who we should respect. So I think it's true that we should never torture you know, an animal. Um, but on the other hand, a human being, uh, whether the human being is an adult or a child, whether that human being is black or white, male or female, whether that human being is born or waiting to be born, I think we can come to the conclusion that all human beings deserve a special kind of respect. The idea would be that all human beings have inalienable human rights, including the right to live. And so what that means is it's always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. So I think we can put both those views together. In other words, a view that says, yes, we should not torture animals because they're not just objects. You know, my dog is not like, you know, a piece of paper or something I can just burn and, you know, it doesn't matter. On the other hand, my dog is different than my daughter. Right. My daughter mm -hmm. deserves a special respect uh, way beyond what I give to my dog. Um, so, again, I, I don't think these truths are truths that require special revelation or faith. I think people of goodwill can understand these basic truths. So those are the kinds of questions that are um, addressed very, very adeptly in uh, this book, Disputes in Bioethics, Abortion, Euthanasia and Other Controversies, the way you might See, the question raised um, in the book would be, does the species of an individual make a difference for the individual's moral status? Um, that is the question of whether or not my dog and my daughter are, um, are different in terms of my moral responsibility um, to them and my view of them. Um, questions at both ends of life. Uh, should we make children with three or more parents? Um, is it better never to have been born all those kinds of questions. And then on the other end of life, the death with dignity question is raised as well. Is death with dignity a dangerous euphemism? Let's just take that uh, question up directly, um, Dr. Kayser. Is death with dignity a dangerous euphemism? I think it is. I think when we use that phrase, death with dignity, that sounds like it's a very respectful sort of thing. But I think, in fact, when we think about it more carefully, it's really not. So what that means, uh, this euphemism, death with dignity, really means the legal right to kill some kinds of human beings at the end of life. And my view would be that elderly and disabled people have exactly the same basic rights as a young and healthy person. I don't think we should carve out exceptions for elderly or disabled people and say, well, these people we can kill. But a young, healthy person, well, we can't kill that sort of person. I would say that that all people should have the same basic rights not to be killed. And part of the reason for this is that when you carve out a so-called right to die, what actually happens is many elderly and handicapped people feel a pressure. They feel a duty to die. And they can be pressured and are pressured by others who might think that the world would be, would be better off without them. And so I think that when we introduce a legal right to die, it raises issues and questions about how we treat the vulnerable, how we treat the elderly. And I think rather than putting them and pressuring them into exercising a right to die, I think the way we ought to behave is to love and care for and really reach out to 
people who are vulnerable. So I think at the end of life, people are vulnerable and they are suffering and they need our compassion. They need our help. They need us to stay with them and to accompany them all the way through until the end of their life. And I think when we introduce this right to die under death with dignity, the, the real result of this is that we say some people have a different dignity, a lesser dignity, precisely because they're elderly or they're suffering. And my view would be that all human beings deserve to have equal dignity. And therefore, all human beings deserve to have equal protection against getting killed by others. Dr. Kayser, thank you um, so much for helping us think through the issues of the day. Um, thank you for helping us understand natural law as it applies to you know some of the most critical bioethical disputes of the day. These are conversations that every single one of us, you know, we're having these conversations. We're just having them, you know, on some degree of, oh, well, I, I thought I sounded pretty good in that conversation versus, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know how to articulate um, you know, the things of the faith in that conversation. So I think that's what you're helping us do, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate those kind words. And if I can help others to understand the value and dignity of all human beings, either from the perspective of faith or from the perspective of reason, then I think I'm doing something important and valuable. So thanks very much for making time for me. Absolutely. Dr. Kayser is a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. He writes frequently um, in all kinds of places. He's also the author of Disputes in Bioethics, Abortion, Euthanasia, and Other Controversies. If you're listening to Mornings with Carmen, we'll be right back. All righty. So we, um, we say cheese when we get our picture taken. Have you noticed that? Well, if you were to, let's say... Take a picture of some cheese and post it on your social media. Guess what? The cops could use that to track you down. Yep, that's exactly what happened to um, a criminal uh, in Europe. Now, that would be an example of how social media can literally come back around to bite you. We talk about social media and what we post there with Chris Martin. He's up next. In our culture, we keep intensely busy. Schedules are overdone, calendars overbooked, and responsibilities overwhelming. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I don't know what you're facing in your life today, but I can imagine that you've got a lot on your plate. That's not necessarily bad, unless it takes away from your family relationships. If you're too busy to have fun with your teenage son, you're too busy. And if you can't ever seem to fit in an hour for coffee and conversation with your daughter, you're too busy. Make room for the most important things in life. Maybe there's something inconsequential that needs to drop off your calendar in order to spend the best part of your day with your team. You have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Wish you could listen to that sermon again and again? Jump in the car partway through an interview that you wish you'd heard all of? Is there a show or an interview you heard that you would like to pass along to a friend? Download or share our free show podcasts at MyFaithRadio.com and listen anywhere, anytime. That's MyFaithRadio.com.
Chris Martin is back. You can read what we're going to talk about today at his Terms of Service newsletter, which is on Substack. Chris, welcome back, man. Hey, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. All right. You have an excellent piece posted called The New Tower of Babel. Make your argument. Uh, Yeah. So um, when I graduated from uh, my Christian liberal arts school in 2013, Taylor University, and I had a degree in biblical literature, got married and was planning on trying to figure out where I was going to go to seminary and eventually found a job at a Christian publisher here in Nashville. And um, the job was working in social media and a very well-meaning family member of ours said, hey, should are you sure, said to my wife, uh, hey, are you sure Chris should be getting a job in social media? It seems like a fad that may be going away in a few years, um, which is understandable. Like, I, I get it, because back in 2013, I mean, though Facebook had about 1.2 billion monthly active users and 73% of the world who was using the internet was using social media, it definitely didn't have the cultural prowess that it has today. Um you know, there's a lot of viral videos or, or whatever, but it didn't drive so much of culture like it does quite today, which makes sense because it was a bit younger then. Um, but social media wasn't a fad in 2013, and it's definitely not a fad now, but it is definitely here to stay. And so for good or for ill, it's here. It's not going anywhere. And the social media, social media in all the different ways we communicate with other people online is really an unprecedented institution of socialization. Um, Cause I mean, social media is social. A lot of people think of it as a broadcast platform or they just post stuff and don't ever engage with people. Um, but really I think there's nothing like social media in recorded history since the Tower of Babel, which we read about in Genesis 11. If you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, a bunch of people who were at this at this time still speaking the same language gathered together and decided to build this tower um, in order to demonstrate their prowess, their self-sufficiency, and really their pride before God. Um, and God eventually frustrated this effort by giving them different languages so they could no longer communicate because that that was the the crux was they could all speak the same language so they could perform this great act of human might by building this tower up to the sky unlike it seems unlike anybody had seen um it seems rather unprecedented this tower of babel and um what allowed them to do that was this shared language. So what we had is we had the people of the world who gathered together and deployed their novel communication capabilities to embark on an endeavor that would demonstrate their self-sufficiency, their independence, and their ingenuity. Today, on the social internet and through varieties of social media that we consume online, we have gathered together with the people of the world and engaged in our own novel communication capability to fiddle with our own frivolities and attempt to demonstrate our own self-sufficiency, independence, and ingenuity. And so I think, I really think that what we're doing uh, on social media is more like the Tower of Babel than, than the printing press was, than any other innovation. Because while the printing press obviously was probably the most consequential human innovation before the internet, in terms of communication anyway, um, it didn't bring people together in quite the same way that the internet brings people together. It gave people the ability to read books that they didn't have before. Obviously, it allowed the distribution of the Bible in ways that it hadn't been distributed before. 
but but the printing press what it allowed was a pretty independent enterprise. I mean, unless you were starting a book club back when the printing press was invented, you were getting a book that you were reading on your own or perhaps with your family. Um, with the internet, the whole core of the innovation is social and connecting of people. And so I think that what we've built on the social internet is more like the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11 than anything that we've seen in, in human history. I think that's such an astute observation. It certainly rings um, rings true. I'm continually, I don't know, surprised is probably no longer the right word because I don't think I feel surprised. Um, the feeling, I, I continue to observe a growing number of places and spaces where words no longer mean the same thing um, to various people and the defense of particular positions related to language um, are curious as well. And that's sort of another ex- expression of of the way the Tower of Babel is the new reality in which we find ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's really interesting how uh, while we've all come together on social media, I think you, you make a good addition here. We've almost given ourselves a different language, um, mm-hmm. different languages, uh, and fr- and frustrated ourselves as a result. I mean, it's I I've often well, and memes. Commented- so I don't want to interrupt you, but memes are a You're part gonna- of that. Like I, mm-hmm. people will post things in a meme, and I'll just have to admit to you, I don't have any idea what the underlying conversation is that's happening with that. Yeah, there's a social media podcast out there, or it's it's like a tech podcast or an internet podcast, I guess. It's called Reply All, and mm. they have a great segment at the end of some of the episodes. I don't think it's every episode. Um, they have a great segment at the end of some of the episodes called Yes, Yes, No, where uh, the hosts, who are pretty internet savvy, because that's the, kind of the whole point of the podcast, is they're breaking down internet trends. They'll have like their boss on, who's definitely not as connected to the internet as they are, and they'll. Mm. They'll like read him a tweet or a meme, like explain a phenomena and ask him, uh, they'll, they'll say, okay, who understands? Like, do you understand this? And they'll both say yes, yes. And then he'll say no. And so it's, there's a lot of that going around for sure. I am on the no side of that. Most times I feel confident. I still don't. I mean, I know you've explained it to me a number of times, but I still don't even understand what trolling is. I just don't. I don't get it. I totally don't get that. Okay. So if I have ever trolled you and that's a bad thing, then I'm sorry. But maybe I've trolled you and it's not a bad thing. I don't know. See, I'm (laughs) I'm even confused about the whole thing. Okay. So we have to take a very brief brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, another piece. Well, actually, we're going to just talk about the newsletter, the current newsletter that Chris has posted on his Substack because he draws attention, draws our attention to an article in the New York Times about TikTok being Gen Z's new food network, which I thought was really an interesting observation. Um, but then uh, we're going to hit the links, which is one of those places where Chris tees up, literally like tees up for us conversations that are happening out there in the wider world, particularly on social media um, that, you know, Raise our awareness. I would say this is the awareness raising portion of our conversation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Chris Martin, you can follow him on Twitter at Chris Martin 17. He works in the area of uh, social media and content marketing, um, and he writes uh, on Substack in a newsletter called Terms of Service, or that's actually 
the whole name of his blog. All right, let's talk about um, one of the things that you raised our attention to uh, in your Substack, and that is TikTok is Gen Z's food network. I thought this was um, this was a good link for us to be paying attention to. It's a it's an article actually in the New York Times. Yeah, of course, by Taylor Lorenz, who is uh, one of the best internet culture reporters in the world. Honestly, I think she's probably the best internet culture reporter in the world. She's publishing stories like this two or three times a week uh, about just trends on social media um, of all of all varieties, good, bad, and ugly. Um, in this one, she has her first piece in the food section of the New York Times, um, in which she talks about food uh, food stars are popping up on TikTok everywhere. So, no, no, uh, obviously. Just for- can you remind us? Because TikTok is really short format. Yeah, of course. So TikTok is if you're if you at all remember Vine, which was a short form video platform created by Twitter back uh, in like 2012 ish. Um, it was only six seconds. Uh, TikTok is a similar short form video social media platform that allows for content up to about a minute or so. Um, and there's all kinds of stuff. It was originally created as a social media platform for like lip syncing to music sort of uh there's there's like a sound feature where every every video can have like a unique sound behind it you could put some like actual music behind it that's been licensed uh by the by the app for the by the uh, <laughs> by the artist sorry and uh, or you could just like create your own sounds like by talking like into like a little 1 minute video blog you know like a vlog or whatever so a lot of these Gen Zers, which TikTok is most popular among like high schoolers and college students, I guess you could say, um, older teenagers and, and young adults. And a lot of these uh, Gen Z TikTok users are becoming very fast food network-esque stars. And most of them don't even have like a culinary training background. Um, so, and what they're doing is, the reason is, is they're just very good on camera. Like they're very good at speaking and and they, you know, they've watched YouTubers and such grow. I mean, YouTube was their Nickelodeon growing up. So they, they are, are used to watching all of these YouTube stars record themselves. And so they have that part down. And then perhaps they like cooking with their parents in the kitchen or something like that. And it's not like they're creating these five star restaurants, super highfalutin, uh, you know, meals that would, you know, cost you 80 bucks at your local um, fancy restaurant. They're creating like TikTok pasta or TikTok ramen, like that's what these things are being called. And what they're doing is they're just finding like fun, easy recipes on the internet that they often aren't creating, or maybe they're finding recipes and kind of modifying them and just doing very simple recipe tutorials uh, in a minute, you know, just kind of like a bunch of jump cuts is what they're called. So they'll like record themselves doing something for five seconds and then kind of jump to like the next stage of the process. And it's like a heavily edited video a lot of times. Um, like, hey, grab your spices. Here's what you should have. And they'll like list. You can put text on the screen on TikTok videos. So they'll put like they'll list the ingredients or like what their spice mixture was. And so you can pause the video and like jot down the the recipe, like the actual uh, stat, you know, the metrics, the measurements and all of that. If you, if you want, um, I, in fact, it's funny that this story came out for the first time. I think it was at the beginning of this week, maybe end of last week, I made this like TikTok ramen that I came across, uh, a couple months ago and I like bookmarked it in my app. And it's just like, you get your, like your standard 45 cent pack of ramen from the grocery store, but then you kind of like make it a lot better by like 
you know, uh, frying an egg and making some like chopping up some carrot and green onions and stuff like that. And it was really good. I can I can attest that uh, I made a TikTok recipe. It was very easy. I made it for lunch one day and I and I found it by following one of these sort of Food Network esque uh, 19 year old TikTok uh, culinary stars. Um, so anyway, there's these these kids or these young adults are exploding in popularity on the app. A lot of people have obviously had more free time and have been home cooking their own meals more often than last year. And so it was kind of just a perfect storm for a trend like this to pop off. I'm intrigued. I I feel like I um you know, I I loved to do some I did some Facebook lives on Tuesdays um in the beginning kind of in the beginning of the COVID shutdown in part to teach my now graduated high school senior how to cook some things because I had her be my videographer, which I realized I didn't need, but it was um, it was a way to keep her right there while I was while I was cooking. And we did these little tasty Tuesday taste and seize. And it was really, really fun and I had a great time. I feel like if you could do it, if you could chop that all down and like actually deliver the content in a couple of minutes, because can't on TikTok, can't you do like a minute of content and then and then, like, attach one more minute or something. I, I they're slowly but surely Some, extending the amount of time that you mm-hmm. can make content. Yeah, for sure. Because a minute is quick, man. Which I, I realize yeah. it's supposed to be. Anyway, maybe there is an opportunity here for a mission-minded Christian um, to uh, to get involved as well to help people taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, there you go. All right. Um, well, you and I still have uh, still have a couple of minutes of time to talk. So let's hit the links um, because I love this part of your um, uh, of uh, of your weekly newsletter. Um, link one: Crime app citizen is testing. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Tell me what this is about. There's a crime app. There's, there's a there's a app <laughs> called Citizen out there, which oh, sounds like you. genuinely one of the worst ideas. I've ever heard. Uh, it's 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 like Uber for personal security force. Like this new feature that they're testing is um, basically you can like like you'd be ordering uh, DoorDash Chipotle to your house on a Saturday afternoon, and you're too lazy to drive across town to pick up Chipotle yourself. Uh, you can you can like DoorDash a personal security force if you feel like threatened wherever you are. Um, and like these, obviously like these bodyguards or whatever, whatever they are, these like this, like hired militia will show up and have defend you or whatever, whatever it is that you need in that particular moment. Uh, I'm not, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not a fan. I don't think a, uh, Uber for security force is the, uh, is a positive development as far as the internet's concerned. No, I don't either. All right. Americans <laughs> actually want privacy. Shocking. Yeah. So uh, there's a huge new feature in the new uh, Apple iPhone operating system where you have to opt in to be tracked by a lot of apps that want to track you to advertise to you. So if you've ever uh, sneezed and then wondered why you got a nasal spray or allergy medication ad or something like that, and you're like, I swear they're listening to me. Um iOS has given you the opportunity to not have to be tracked and a lot and most people are opting to not be tracked. So that's it's great. All right. Link number three this week is a really helpful bit of advice on how to remove your account from someone else's Twitter list. Yeah. So there on Twitter, if you're a Twitter user, you can make lists. Uh, I have a number of lists. I have like a national news list. I have a Nashville news list. I have a, a sports reporter news list. And so uh, there are all kinds of lists, and perhaps 
you're on a list and you don't want to be on the list. Maybe you get harassed on Twitter or um, you just want to see who is following you on a list without actually following you by clicking follow, uh, which is a, a kind of a way that people sneaky follow people. Um, the article in link three in my newsletter this week explains how you can figure out what lists you're on because they can be private and you not know that you're on those lists. You can figure out what lists you're on and remove yourself from them without the person even really knowing it, which is really helpful. That is totally fascinating. Like that, yeah. I, I know there's probably people listening right now who are like Carmen is – um, is a bit of a geek related to this, but yeah. So there you go. Chris is more of a geek that we will, and we will conclude yes. with that. <laughs> true. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday weekend. You as well. All right. That's Chris Martin. You can find him on Twitter at Chris Martin 17. Um, you should be following his sub stack. It is called terms of service. And um, you can always sign up for the funnies, which he sends out every Saturday. And that, that one is for free. All right. We'll be right back. All right, just a reminder to be praying for each other today. Um, I just recognize that the conversation with Chris Chris Kayser about bioethics um, surfaced some questions in in our listening audience about end-of-life decision-making um, and whether or not at some point it is our decision to make. Um, and I just, I, my heart goes out to you if you're living with debilitating chronic pain, um, if you're living with a terminal diagnosis, and I just want to say today, you are precious and your life is worthy of living and God is good and God is great and God is sovereign. Um, and I'm not pretending nor in any way seeking to minimize the reality of the pain that you're experiencing right now in this very moment. But neither am I willing to minimize uh, the power of God to redeem in this moment, to um, to enable you to live in a way that glorifies him, even in the midst of this particular uh, way that we experience the fallenness of our humanity. Johnny Erickson Tata is the best person on this topic that I know. Susie Larson is good on this topic as well. Um, chronic pain is real, and a lot of people uh, deal with it each and every day. And as Christians, let us be supportive of one another in the midst of it, um, starting with prayer, but not ending there. Let us be uh, in actual support of one another this day. Um, so reach out, reach out to somebody that you know in chronic pain. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.